Hello, micro friends. I'm Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, you know, I can't wait to share this show with you. What if doctors could use microbes to treat infections? It might seem counterintuitive at first because, well, aren't microbes the problem? Well, not really. Our bodies have microbes living in and on them, which is a good thing. These organisms, called the human microbiome, help keep us healthy. Because of the amazing benefits of having these microorganisms as a part of us, Why couldn't we try and take bacteria and other microbes that are considered quote-unquote healthy and use them to fix some of the problems we experience due to quote-unquote bad microbes? There are numerous companies actually doing this. It's so exciting. And they're developing ways to use microbes to fix microbial problems. So in this podcast episode, I chat with Dr. Brian Klein, who is the co-founder and CEO of Brickbuilt Therapeutics, which is a company that is developing therapeutics to treat infections of the mouth. In this episode, we discuss the human microbiome, give a little bit of an overview of what that is, talk about his company, Brickbuilt Therapeutics, how that works, what he's doing with it, and then we also go into talking about other types of infections particularly Clostridium difficile infections or C. diff infections and fecal transplants and how they have really helped with those types of infections. It sounds kind of gross if you've never heard of it before, but it's actually quite remarkable. And as a side note, C. diff is Clostridium difficile. used to be Clostridium is now a really hard-to-pronounce name, and that's one of those things that happens with microbiology is that we end up renaming bacteria as we learn more about them. And so it is now called Clostridioides difficile. I just had to look that up because that's a hard one to say, and thankfully there's a website that had the pronunciation. So we talked about that and the different microbiome-based therapeutics now that are out there to help with C. diff infections, and then also how some other companies are looking at skin and gut microbiome therapeutics, and then just the basic process of how you turn a microbiome-based discovery into a product. So when scientists find something really cool and then they actually turn that into a product one day. And we talk about some other fun stuff that Brian has done in the past. He's worked on microbiomes of dogs and also what drinking tea does to the microbes that live in our mouths. So if you're (laughs) a tea drinker, which I definitely am, I absolutely love tea, especially loose leaf tea. This was interesting to me to find out that tea actually has some um, antimicrobial compounds in it. And so that's It's a fun thing that we talked about close to the end of the episode. And then we finish up, of course, with the at-home microbiology activities. So make sure you stay tuned to the very end for that. So this is a fun episode, and I hope you enjoy it. So let's get on to the interview. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe podcast. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So you are an entrepreneur and a microbiologist. I can't wait to hear all about this. So tell me a little bit about your company, Brick Built Therapeutics, and how exactly you were able to take a microbiology concept and then turn that into the basis of a company. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so Brick Built Therapeutics was founded uh, last year in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, and we are um, developing novel therapeutics for oral diseases. 
And these oral diseases, like most oral diseases, uh, have a basis in the microbiome. So there's a specific bacteria or a group of uh, species that cause these oral diseases. So with cavities, um, you have streptococcus mutans. And with periodontal disease, also known as gum disease, uh, you have this bug called Porphyrmonis gingivalis. Um, and it's very hard to say sometimes. So, <laughs> And mm. with um, uh, oral candidiasis, also sometimes called thrush, um, you have a candida species that cause this a fungi. Okay. And so you are trying to trying to find therapeutics that will treat these types of diseases. And what, what are the therapeutics like? Uh, great question. So the, the current therapies um, uh, for oral diseases are basically surgery and antibiotics. Um, so if you have a cavity, you're going to get that drilled out and filled. Um, if you have gum disease, uh, you're going to get a really deep cleaning, potentially gum surgery, um, which will make people cringe because it, it hurts mm. and it's expensive. Um, mm. And you might also get a broad spectrum antibiotic. Um, and then for, for th uh, candidiasis or thrush, um, they'll give you potentially an antifungal. So these aren't the greatest therapies um, because they're either expensive or painful or can cause antimicrobial resistance. So we're jumping into the space to make microbial therapeutics. So if you think about the gut microbiome, where you now have a bunch of companies making things um, akin to fecal transplants or um, isolating bacteria and using them as kind of next generation probiotics, um, that's the route we're taking in the mouth. So we're isolating bacteria from healthy people and plants. And then we're, and these are from, these would be from healthy people's mouths. Um, and we're putting them together and finding out which microbes we should put back into people's mouths who have specific oral diseases. So um, if you have gum disease, we'll find out which bacteria from healthy people's mouths can be used to either prevent or treat uh, gum disease and likewise for other oral diseases. Okay. All right. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense that the treatments are really pretty traumatic that you would receive for any sort of oral disease. And um, so shifting or changing or adding to the microbiome could potentially help with that. So now that we've mentioned the word microbiome, why don't we take a step back and kind of, can you explain what the human microbiome is and a lot of people think of the gut microbiome, so let's talk about kind of all the different aspects of it, skin and oral, which you've mentioned, and um, and then why we think we can help restore it when we experience something like infection. Sure thing. Um, so the microbiome, and uh, this can get a little contentious when you use certain terms and who you're talking to, but I think the easiest way to think about the microbiome is the collection of the bugs, so when I say bug, I mean bacteria, virus, fungus, uh, archaea, in one space, um, and all of the genes that they contain. So you have a skin microbiome, you have a gut microbiome, you have a nasal microbiome, and it's really just the collections of the microbes plus their genetic content um, in that space. And sometimes people will use the term microbiota uh, just to describe the back uh, the microbes themselves and not their genes. And so um, you'll, you'll hear a couple different uh, terms in that space. And um, essentially every niche or specific location um, can have a microbiome. So as we mentioned, there's, you know, the gut, the skin, uh, the nose, and then, you know, you can expand that out to uh, even on the skin, there's, you know, different spots on the skin which have specific microbiomes. Um, and so that the, the species um, of microbes on each of these spots or in these places are, can be quite different. Um, so you'll have, you know, an armpit microbiome, a belly button microbiome, and, and all these mm -hmm. different uh, microbiomes, as well as, you know, the earth has, the, has a microbiome. So there's the mm -hmm. air, there's the water, there's, you know, different pots, spots in the soil. And, yeah, that's uh, a good point. And uh, the... You know, sometimes you'll see common microbes um, on, you know, the skin of different people. And but it certain microbiomes tend to be quite um, 
individualistic where, you know, um, a person, a healthy people can have quite different microbiomes um, based on the environment. So maybe uh, someone eats, um, you know, one type of food, another person eats a different type of food, and you'll find that uh, based on their diet, they can have a, a drastic difference. Um, and the same would be for, you know, an indoor air. Um, you know, now that everybody's inside because of the pandemic, um, you know, it's not as not as exposed to UV light. There's less temperature changes. Um, and so the outdoor air microbiome would look drastically different than the indoor air microbiome. Mm hmm. Yeah. So because there's such a variety in people's microbiomes from person to person, then like, how do we figure out what healthy looks like and what quote unquote imbalance looks like compared to one that's not in balance? So that's a great question. Um, and it's going to vary based on the uh, specific locations that we're talking about and the specific diseases that we're talking about. So um, kind of on one end of the spectrum is the gut microbiome. Um, and when we say gut microbiome, we're usually talking about everything past your stomach. Um, so not, not above the stomach. Um, and there's a disease uh, called C. difficile infections or recurrent C. difficile infections. And this is getting a lot of, uh, has been getting a lot of play in the media and is probably the most advanced in terms of microbial therapeutics. Mm -hmm. um, it started out with um, finding that fecal transplants, so taking um, poop from one human that is healthy and putting it into someone who has a C. diff infection, um, it could be curative. And so they realized that basically if you take the gut microbiome from a healthy person and healthy in, in quotations here um, and put it into someone with a severe disease, um, it could remodel that microbiome and fix the problem. Um, that's one of the most drastic examples you're, you're going to find where if you sequenced um, the, we'll just stick to sequencing of bacteria in the gut of the person with C. difficile infections, it's, you can tell that there's an issue. Um, it's one of the, one of the few diseases that, you know, if you, if you sequenced a hundred people who don't have C. diff and one person with C. diff, you could definitely tell that that person has a disease. Mm -hmm. Um, it's less then there's a, a big spectrum in terms of other diseases. So, um, you know, IBD, IBS, um, other gastric, um, problems, they have less of a, you know, who's healthy, who's not. Um, but Can you explain what those are real quick and what uh, those stand for? Uh, sorry. Um, so um, inflammatory bowel disease and then uh, irritable bowel syndrome um, would be the IBD and IBS. Um, and uh, yeah, sorry for the jargon there. Um, no, it's okay. And so with some of these other um, diseases or, or syndromes, um, you'll have to do these clinical studies where you sequence the, in most cases, the, the stool or the, the feces of these people, and then you compare it to a large group who don't have the disease. And that's when you can start picking out um, a signature or specific strains or, or specific species that um, differentiate health from disease. And so, you know, I think it's important to note that you can have people with, um, you know, lots of other health issues, maybe they have hypertension or allergies or something like that. Um, and their gut might look one way, but they'll usually look different than someone who either has a C. diff infection or um, IBD or IBS. So with fecal transplants, you mentioned that, um, which is pretty fascinating and amazing how effective they are. Are there any problems with doing fecal transplants? Have there been any issues that have come about? Great question. Um, so there, there are, there are definitely issues with this. Um, and you know, fecal transplants for people who have recurrent C. diff. So that means they, they had a bout of, of a C. difficile infection. Um, their physician tried to treat them with, um, a, an antibiotic, um, usually vancomycin or metronidazole and it didn't work. So the disease came back, uh, within a couple weeks. And so that would be uh, refractory recurrent and they need something else because if you just keep treating with antibiotics, 
this the success rate continues to get lower. Um, and so they've gone into these more experimental medicines and, uh, you know, fecal transplants have worked quite well. Um, I think the numbers are usually in the, the high 80s for percent of people who receive a fecal transplant and uh, get rid of their of their C. difficile infection. Um, the the issues around using fecal transplants are the screening of the donors um, and making sure that you can get a donor. Um, so this would be someone uh, who you can get stool from. And, um, and there, now there's repositories that, that, uh, around the world where you essentially have frozen poop from healthy donors. Um, but it's still costly to basically bring a donor in, have them, you know, donate their stool and make sure it doesn't have any of these other problems with it. Um, and some of these other problems could be, you know, someone could feel perfectly fine and be like a healthy 22 year old. Um, but they might have, you know, multi-drug resistant E. coli in their stool. And it hasn't caused them a problem. But if you give that feces to someone who already has a C. diff infection, they could actually have compounding problems now where they have, you know, two infections going on. So um, what companies are doing now, and this is kind of the basis for um, companies like Fedanta Biosciences, Ceres, Finch, um, Rebiotics, are they isolate bacteria from these healthy people's stool and they figure out which ones are necessary and which ones fix the disease instead of giving someone someone else's poop to fix it now they're going to give you know what we can consider next generation probiotics um so mm -hmm. they go through phase one phase two phase three clinical trials the fda clears this as a drug um the drug just happens to be bacteria and and mm -hmm you're going to get that and it will fix your disease. So are they seeing that these, like when they make those very specified kind of probiotic drugs, are they seeing that they're staying in their gut and colonizing and kind of kicking out the C. diff? And I guess we should probably kind of explain what it looks like when someone has a C. diff infection. Um, but then, yeah, are those companies actually seeing that they those new organisms are colonizing? Uh, great question. And I think there is some, you know, there's general debate on how long and, and if uh, for specific diseases, the bacteria do need to colonize. Um, but in general, most companies are trying to make sure that the bacteria that they feed you um, in, a, in a capsule that is, in, you know, their drug um, would colonize your your gastrointestinal tract for at least a long enough time that it could prevent the recurrence of, of in this case, uh, Clostridium difficile coming back and, and causing issues. So that is generally what's studied in um, phase one and, and phase two. Um, and so they're checking to see in, you know, in phase one, you might be dosing your bacterial product into healthy humans. Um, and you're checking to see in their poop over time or potentially in other places, but it's just easiest to measure uh, stool um, rather than doing invasive studies. Um, are the bacteria that were in your pill in this person's you know, gastrointestinal tract at day one, day seven, one month, six months, and sometimes up to a year? Um, and if you can show that your bacteria are there and that the disease doesn't come back, then the it's leading more to show that, you know, you have a causal relationship between your species staying there and blocking this disease. Mm -hmm. And with C. diff, is it, am I right in saying that it's like kind of just colonizes the whole gut, but it's always there present in most people's guts already. But then when you take antibiotics, it wipes out the other organisms that are not resistant to the antibiotic and then you're left with C. diff that then just kind of takes over. But then it's so that's why you're having to replace with some of the organisms that you lost from the antibiotic treatment. Is there anything else you would want to add or correct <laughs> from that? Yeah, that's a that's a great initial description. Um, I would say that there's a couple factors that come in here. Um, one is generally in young, healthy people. Um, and again, healthy kind of in quotations, just meaning that there's no outward diseases that they're presenting with. Um, 
if you take stool from, you know, a hundred or a thousand of these, you know, young, healthy people, the rate that you'd isolate C. diff, um, I believe right now is, is shown to be in like a three to 5%. So it's not oh, okay. um, hugely that's prevalent. Um, now that's not to say it could be, you know, at a very, very small amount, you know, below a limit that you'd usually plate onto um, auger and find it. Um, the usually you have these issues, as you said, where people get, you know, an antibiotic treatment for something else, not for initially having C. diff. And, you know, they go into the hospital and then they pick up C. diff or they get it from someone else who is carrying it. Um, and then it blooms and it causes these other issues because it is sometimes resistant. It has this um, kind, of, kind of like a secondary lifestyle where it's a spore. Um, so um, bacterial spores are kind of these dormant, resistant versions um, of what people usually think of bacteria, you know, kind of growing and doing all these things. Um, and if you have a spore version of yourself, then it's resistant to a lot of environmental stresses. And then once nothing's around to, to cause it an issue, it can then, you know, germinate and, and really, uh, cause it, cause problems in the, in your, in your gastrointestinal tract. So how do people pick up C. diff in the hospital? Where does it come from? Um, so another good question. And, you know, there's been some great studies, uh, some, uh, that came out of Oxford in the UK, um, where they actually studied specific C. diff wards or, or infectious disease wards. So, you know, one of the issues that you'd run into is, um, when you're in a hospital and you're getting antibiotics for, I don't know, let's say, um, you know, uh, any coli infection, um, and you come in, you get this, this antibiotic, and it can wipe out your gastrointestinal tract and someone else who has C. diff down the hall um, might essentially transmit it to you. Um, and that mm -hmm. can be via many different mechanisms. Uh, people, you know, someone not washing their hands well enough, um, mm -hmm. flushing of a toilet, all these other things. Um, and that's one kind of, you know, hospital acquired uh, version of this, but there, there are other ways of doing, you know, community acquisition. Maybe you live in a house with someone um, who has it and they're not showing symptoms and, and, you know, uh, then they, then they transmit it to you. Or in fact, sometimes you can have people who have active C. diff infections who, you know, are just going about their day and, and, you know, can transmit to people as well in the, in, in, um, the environment. Hmm. Wow. So you have, before you started your company, you worked at, after you did your PhD and your postdoc, and you worked at a couple of different companies. And I kind of want to hear about what that was like, because they were um, kind of trying to develop therapeutics as well. So why don't you start from where um, you went after your postdoc and then after that? Sure. Um, after my postdoc, uh, this is around 2016, 2017, and there really the only microbiome therapeutics companies um, because I really wanted to do therapeutics, not more the, what we think of conventional probiotics. Um, so I wasn't going to go to um, a Nestle, a Dan and, um, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, any of those companies doing more of the yogurt or, or encapsulated probiotics side of things. Um, I saw that there were a couple gut microbiome companies really focused in the greater Boston area, which was great because I was coming out of, postdoc in the greater Boston area. Um, and I liked the approach that Vedanta Biosciences was taking. Um, and so I applied for a job there and, and became a microbiologist at Vedanta. Um, and they were doing uh, gut microbiome therapeutics with the idea that they would isolate the bacteria from healthy people um, and then, you know, grow these bacteria individually and then put them into a pill in a specific consortia. So um, thinking about, all right, well, if I have, you know, let's just imagine you have a hundred different species of bacteria in this healthy person's gut, maybe you only need five of them to fix a specific disease. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you'd grow each, each one individually, you uh, mix them together in a pill, and then you'd figure out, okay, how am I going to give this pill to someone? Do I need to give it, you know, seven days in a row, two times a day or something like that? Um, and so I worked there for, for three years. It was, it was quite a great place to work, um, learned a whole lot. And 
then I spent about half a year um, at a company called Dermbiant uh, doing skin microbiome therapeutics. Um, and they're also located in Boston, so it was great uh, being, being close by. Um, and it got me a little bit more of experience outside the gut. Um, and it also showed that, you know, now you could start companies that aren't looking at the gut microbiome. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad that both investors and academics um, and, and governments are, are realizing that, you know, funding for all the microbiome based diseases uh, is, is very important. Yeah. Oh, that's so neat. Um, this is just a really fascinating idea to actually use microbes to treat diseases. Um, so like, I know that there's different types of products that could come out, but where do you imagine people finding these products? Would they be through a prescription from a doctor? I know with like really severe things like treating C. diff, most likely that would be through a prescription, but do you imagine any products coming to drugstores or grocery stores or health food stores, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, for the current companies, there uh, there is an FDA track that describes uh, it's it's called LBPs or uh, live biotherapeutic products. And so, for most companies that are going to take this track of going through a phase one clinical trial, phase two, phase three, getting approval, um, those like those are definitely going to be prescribed by your doctor. So those are mm-hmm. not going to be kind of over the counter medicines. Um, there might be other spin-offs or over-the-counter versions of some of these things that the companies will put out. Um, I can see this potentially through partnerships that they may have with, with other more um, direct-to-consumer companies. But most of the microbiome therapeutics companies are probably going to stay in that, in that um, therapeutic space and, and go via either a doctor or a dentist or something of that nature. Um, with that being said, there are a few companies, um, I believe AOBiome uh, had, a, had a spray you could get for certain uh, skin-based diseases. And, and there are some companies that um, I do believe had, you know, pastes or there's like a cosmeceutical route um, for, for certain skin uh, diseases. So it's, it's important to think about the regulatory space in which either your drug or your, or your substance is going to be. Um, and so there's certain rules for, for foods, there's certain roots, rules for, um, you know, uh, skin ointments and medications, but they don't always have to go through clinical trials and have, you know, we'll call it like the, the hardest regulatory route. Um, so there are, there are some where you might be able to just purchase it over the counter or through a specific website. Um, in those cases, um, I, I can actually, uh, there, there's one company called BrightCure. Um, in the UK, and uh, they're developing something for um, uh, uh, urinary tract infections, um, and that is going through a different route um, than this FDA uh, LBP route, and so that I believe you will be able to buy directly from them. Okay. So um, you kind of explained a little bit about the process of these products going to market but can you kind of explain from start to finish what that would look like? A scientist finds something really cool and they're like, I want to, you know, make this into something most like anybody can use. So what does that look like exactly? And you can use your company as an example if you'd like to, or one of the companies that you worked with. Sure. Um, so it can take a lot of different ways, but, but just one example would be, you know, if you're an academic, um, maybe you're a PhD student or, or your professor, and you're doing these, you know, large scale studies where you might get samples from, I don't know, let's say a cranberry bog, because uh, I'm in Massachusetts and, and that's something we mm-hmm. do here. Um, so you might get a, a sample from a cranberry bog. Um, you'll take that that sample, whether it's you know the actual cranberries or water sample or soil sample, and you'll bring it to your laboratory and put that onto auger plates. And you'll look for different bacteria that are growing or, or fungi or whatever um, microbe you're trying to isolate. And you'll pick them individually and then you'll see what they could potentially do. Um, and so maybe if you are interested in um, certain skin diseases or, or let's say Staph aureus, you know, we, we want a new drug for Staph aureus. So you'll isolate 
different things from this cranberry bog, um, and you'll see on a on an uh, an auger plate does my microbe that I've isolated from this cranberry bog inhibit, uh, so stop either the growth or the disease progression um, that is caused by Staph aureus. And you know, if you if you discover that in your lab, you might write a paper on it. Um, but before you write that paper, you'd probably get a patent and okay. um, start talking to companies or start talking to venture capital firms. Okay. And so companies that might be interested in these maybe anti-infectives, you know, you might think of large companies like AstraZeneca, um, or you could think of smaller companies like, you know, Dermabiont. Um, so you have your two examples of uh, a traditional antibiotics company in AstraZeneca, um, all the way down to, you know, the, the newer, more novel um, microbial therapeutics companies like Dermabiont. And then they might bring it in um, as a patented um, uh, um, thing, and they would start working up this, this strain of bacteria. And there's a bunch of ways you can go with it after that. So um, when thinking about microbial therapeutics, um, which would be, you know, what, what BrickBuilt is trying to do, where you have a microbe that is good and you're going to try and inhibit these ones that are generally bad, um, the, you can do, okay, I'm going to feed this person or, or put a lotion on this person that is a live microbe, kind of thinking of probiotics. Um, or you can go a couple different routes where you could, um, you know, lice this bacterium. Um, so you'd grow it up in a, in a, in a vat, you'd essentially blow it up, um, and it wouldn't be alive anymore, but maybe the ingredients, um, or the metabolites that this, uh, bacterium produced would now work to get rid of the disease or the, the bad bug. Um, there's also ways where you can just filter out the, the metabolites or the things that this microbe produced and see if that works, um, in either a cream or a mouthwash or something of that nature. Um, and then if you are taking it through the FDA, you would then do these clinical trials to check, you know, is it safe? Is it efficacious? And, and can I scale it up to produce it enough for, for people around the world? Okay, cool. And then for companies that don't go through the FDA, what, what does that look like? Sure. Um, so are they considered um, kind of like natural products or are like supplements, that kind of thing? That's, that's a great question. It, it varies on country. It varies um, in the space that you're in. Um, you know, so if you're if you're doing dietary supplements, um, that's one way. Um, nutritional supplements, especially if you look to the EU, um, have kind of many different tiers. So you know, if you're trying to put this into a baby formula, that's one thing, and it has specific regulations. If you're trying to um, use it in geriatric populations, that's a, that's a whole other thing. Um, if it's in this, like, just to keep healthy adults healthy, um, that tends to be the, the least regulated um, and kind of easiest space to be in. Um, so you really just would make sure that the strain you're using is what they call generally regarded as safe. Um, you'll hear this term GRAS, G-R-A-S, and that's what it means. Um, and so you probably just have to prove, um, you know, that we have this bacteria that people have consumed for many, many years. It's probably found from either yogurt or something like that. Um, and you might have to show a regulatory body the genome. Uh, so what's the sequence of this bacteria? And just make sure that it's not resistant to antibiotics. Um, some companies will take the step of putting it through a uh, phase one healthy volunteer trial just to make sure that it is truly safe. Um, and then they'll do things like, you know, dietary trials. Like um, if you make it into a powder or you put it into, a, you know, a, a Nutrigrain bar or something like that, um, how does it, you know, affect this person's, maybe they'll, they'll usually talk about things like um, uh, not curative of disease, but it will be more like they had less bloating or they, you know, um, passed better bowel movements or something like that. Okay. So with all these different products, and I know we've talked a lot about a lot of different things, but with just the idea of using microbes as therapeutics, um, 
Where do you think we'll be in five, 10 or 20 years? Do you think we'll have a lot of this stuff out there? Do you think we're heading in that direction to see more and more of these types of things coming out and being really common? And how soon? So uh, great question. And I'm very excited because I think some of them will be here very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, and, and one of the things that if we take a step back, the what these are generally re- replacing or the reason behind some of this is either there wasn't a drug to fix this problem or oh, yeah. the drug was extremely problematic from like an antimicrobial mm. resistance standpoint. So, you know, in the case of C. diff with a fecal transplant, it was curing, you know, 85%, maybe more than 85% of people um, that had failed this previous treatment with vancomycin. Um, and so if you can fill that void, that's great. Um, and there are multiple companies in phase two and phase three clinical trials. Um, and so the assumption would be that, you know, at least one of these will, will win out and we should see a product within the next couple of years, specifically for yeah. CDF. Um, the skin, skin ones are, are um, a little bit different because I think sometimes they can bypass uh, phase one and go directly to phase two. Um, and so there's some, there's some aspects of like, if you're not consuming a product and you're just putting it on your skin, um, that can, that can lead to potentially a faster route. Um, and I think some of these will, will also get on the market quite quickly because, um, again, I think they're going to be safe because if you take microbes from a healthy person and you put them onto someone who has a disease based on the microbes, um, the science at least makes sense. Um, and the safety profile should be quite good. Um, and, and, you know, if the only options are the few antifungals that we have um, available to us, then, then it makes sense to try and get these things um, to work and, and, and to be um, through the clinical trials. Um, so, yeah, I am I'm very uh, hopeful that we will see a few of these uh, quite soon. Um, and, I, and I think they can they can definitely fill a, an important void that's out there. That's so exciting. <laughs> I can't wait to see. Um, so thinking about all the stuff that you're doing now, I'm curious about how you initially got interested in microbiology in the first place. And if you ever imagined doing this type of thing where you started your own company and you're working on therapeutics now. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I got interested in microbes. Um, I think quite young, I'm, I'm not sure when most people get interested in what, what becomes their career, but um, the first time I ever plated bacteria, so put bacteria onto an agar plate, um, was probably 10th grade in high school. And um, mm. I was able to see, I think our, our, our teachers, you know, had a spit onto like a loop and we spread it on the plate. And some people had these really bright orange and, uh, and yellow bacterial colonies on their plates. And I thought this was absolutely fascinating. Um, and so I was hooked really early in high school. Um, and knew that I wanted to do science. And, you know, after that, and it seemed weird because at the time, no one else was nearly as interested in the bacteria growing on the plates. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I, in college, um, I was able to, you know, uh, go to a small liberal arts school and study science, which usually isn't the track, I think, for most people who go on to do their PhD. Um, They tend to go to these larger um, state schools that have, you know, really large, robust um, science uh, capabilities versus a small um, school that focuses on like history and English. Um, But because of that, I was able to find a a professor who would let me do a study on something that we both found interesting. Um, And I was interested in tea and coffee uh, because I started to drink a whole lot of it in college. (laughs) Um, As we do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, 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 you know, everyone around the world drinks these things. So mm-hmm. um, I was also, at the time, uh, her lab, uh, which was quite small, one other person at the time, um, studied oral bacteria. And I thought, okay, and oral bacteria, so things that are living in your mouth, great. Um, that's where tea and coffee usually start their transit in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she let me study, you know, the effects of uh, the antimicrobial effects of tea and tea compounds on oral bacteria. Mm-hmm. And that was super cool. So looking at like how different things in your mouth are affected by um, whole tea as well as, you know, different uh, separations of tea. And uh, and that's kind of where, you know, I jumped from there into things like um, athletes and dogs and, and, and eventually to where I am with BrickBuilt. But 
you know, so there is this transition of, you know, my first time seeing bacteria was from people spitting onto a plate. Um, and that's, you know, over almost 20 years ago and now <laughs> running a company that, that focuses on oral diseases. That's really neat to see how that kind of circled around. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Um, yeah. But did you imagine that you'd ever start your own company? So, um, I, I knew that I wanted to be in industry. I didn't know that I would start my own company until probably, um, my postdoc. Um, and, but it's interesting because my old professor from, uh, my graduate work and a couple of my advisors from my graduate work, um, told me I would start a company five to seven years earlier. So mm -hmm. I think they saw it in me before I saw it in myself. Um, yeah. which is great to have advisors who can help you with those things. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> you, I, I really am curious to hear a little bit more about the tea and the oral bacteria. <laughs> so what kinds of compounds did you find and what does that really do? Like when we drink tea on a daily basis, what, what are we doing to our oral bacteria? Is it good? Is it bad? So that's a great, uh, great question. And, you know, I'll, I should temper a lot of the things I say here because it's been several years since I've studied this. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I took some learnings from the time that, you know, in 2000, let's say 2005, 2000 to 2008, there were a bunch of publications coming out showing the effect of tea on um, gastrointestinal infections. So, you know, they were studying places that had frequent cholera um, outbreaks or frequent E. coli outbreaks. And they, they were kind of seeing that people who drank lots of tea or other certain drinks, um, they might have fared better. Um, so I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. I also like to drink tea. Um, there's diseases of the mouth. So let's see how these compounds or just simply brewed tea um, can affect these bacteria. And so, you know, I, I specifically looked at the bacteria that cause um, cavities, uh, gum disease, and, and a few other uh, diseases in the mouth. So there's... Um, uh, or, you know, there's oral cancers and things like that that are also known to be associated with the microbiome and the, the bacteria in the mouth. Um, and so I really just went to these large tea retailers, bought pounds and pounds of tea and either brewed it and, and checked to see, you know, do these bacteria respond by either dying or growing or, or you know, something else, um, as well as separating the compounds using different uh, separation methods. And um, some of the compounds that are most commonly talked about from tea um, are catechins. Um, and one of them in particularly is this, uh, I might screw this term up, but it's epigallocatechin. Uh, so EGCG. Um, and it does have quite broad spectrum um, antimicrobial um, aspects to it. And, and it can also do good things for your cardiovascular system and, and other uh, aspects of your health. Um, and so just with my study, which was, which was quite small and at a small school, um, we did see antimicrobial effects of different compounds in the tea um, on, these, on these bad bugs. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to advocate for, you know, massive amounts of tea drinking to, to mm -hmm. fix these oral diseases um, because also massive amounts of tea drinking can, can stain your teeth. Um, so, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's trade-offs here. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so... You said that it has a broad spectrum antimicrobial activity. So that means it could pretty much kill any type of oral bacteria. So um, what would happen if you have a pretty well-balanced um, oral microbiota, but then you drink tea and like if it's broad spectrum, it's not going to specifically attack the pathogens. So what is exactly happening there? True. And I should, um, so, you know, circling back to what I said a little bit earlier, um, the amounts that I was using here of these specific compounds were, were likely quite higher than you would be getting in, in your daily, you know, cup of tea. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't think you have a real worry there at all, um, especially because lots of people around the world drink, drink tea all the time. Um, the, it is true that you do want to know the spectrum of activity and this would go for microbial therapeutics as well as for these, you know, more nutraceutical um, uh, compounds that you might find in something like tea where uh, your lab that you're developing these things in 
you'd want to test, you know, is it killing the bad guys and keeping the good guys or how is it remodeling the microbiome? And so, um, you know, I'd be interested to see, cause I haven't looked in several years, but I'm, I'm sure that someone at this point has done, you know, the change in the oral and gut microbiome, um, based mm-hmm. on consumption of tea and coffee. And, and yeah. so if that study exists, it'd be good to see, you know, how does it change? Um, important to your question here is, um, the reseeding, uh, and the resilience of a microbiome. So, um, with the mouth, you're constantly, you have microbes, you know, in your saliva, on your tongue, um, you know, tonsils, hard palate, soft palate, all the different, different, you know, um, uh, areas of, of your mouth. And so, you know, even when you hit your mouth with Listerine, brush really hard, go in for, you know, oral cleanings and stuff like that at the dentist, it doesn't get rid of all the bacteria. Um, so, so no matter what you drink and eat and, and do to your mouth, um, you're going to have these other bugs that come back to reseed. Um, that being said, so, so don't, you should never be worried about like, oh, if I drink this hot liquid, it's ruined my mouth forever. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. Um, but that being said, you know, taking, you know, broad spectrum antibiotics, um, you know, if you, if you're on like amoxicillin or something like that for two weeks or four weeks or something like that, um, that can leave an opening for your microbiome to change, whether that's in your mouth or in your gut. Um, and that's kind of that space where you'd want to make sure that if it doesn't return to what we would call potentially your normal, um, so what you had before, um, you, you want to make sure that you're at least in a, another new normal, uh, that is as equally as healthy. Yeah. That's really interesting. And it's interesting to think about the idea of shifting your oral microbiota. And I I would be curious to see what, if there have been studies looking at that. Um, Okay. So you mentioned a lot of other things that are very interesting, but is there anything that you would want to highlight from your, the work that you've done that you'd kind of want to talk about that might be cool for listeners to hear about? Sure. I think the, the two coolest things uh, besides my, my current company and anything we've talked about previously um, was the work I did with um, the gut microbiome of dogs. Um, so I spent a couple of years as the health and genetics chair for a, an AKC breed club, um, which are, if you're not as familiar with dogs, there's you know over 100 breeds of different dogs. Um, and the AKC is the American Kennel Club. Um, and so having gotten my first dog uh, while I was in grad school, um, we, you know, I was interested in, okay, the microbiome already and, and, you know, could we do something here with, with canines? And, um, I was able to get, uh, different, different, uh, owners of a specific breed of dog. Uh, in this case, we did Entley Bookers, um, which is kind of a tri-colored Swiss dog. It looks like a Bernese mountain dog. Um, and there hadn't been that many studies on the gut microbiome of animals. And so, you know, we're used to picking up poop from our dogs all day, every day. And I said, all right, let's, let's sequence um, as many of these dogs as we can get. And so, you know, I got the, the breed club to sequence, I think we did 64 different dogs on a single day. And, um, you know, just looking at, you know, what, what is in the gut of these dogs. And, and I was able to get, um, detailed, you know, age, um, gender, uh, you know, dietary history and things like that, because we know what we feed our dogs. So it's, it's pretty simple for someone to tell me that their dog is on a raw diet or their dog eats lots of carrots every day or something like that. Um, and so, you know, we did this nice little study, um, and we found that, you know, we actually didn't see huge differences based on, um, long-term dietary, uh, histories. But what we did see a difference in was that actually post antibiotics. So there had been, I think, three of the 64 dogs had taken antibiotics in the last you know, month or so. Um, and we could see that they grouped out um, versus, versus all these other dogs. So um, you could potentially start thinking if you had more and more samples, um, whether from different dogs or over, over time spans, um, you might be able to start predicting, you know, um, when 
when gastrointestinal infections might happen and, and how long it takes someone to recover after they've taken antibiotics. The, the other super fun and interesting thing that, that I've been doing for the last couple of years um, has been uh, athlete microbiome. So this, is, yeah. this was the focus um, of my postdoc. Um, I convinced uh, a funding agency to let me study the nasal and oral microbiome as well as the indoor microbiome. Uh, of track facilities, so runners and the indoor tracks that they ran in. Um, and this was specifically trying to look at, you know, does the air microbiome or the surface microbiome of these indoor tracks actually get into the saliva and the nostrils of the people using them and vice versa? Do we like kind of spit on the track and get our microbes on it? Um, and from that sprung out actually uh, some some really great collaborations with um, a, a professor in the UK who is a dentist for the, um, the, the British Olympic team. So we did some studies with, you know, um, Olympians and things of that nature where we were able to look at, you know, the stool, a nostril swab, saliva, and, and start to pick out, you know, what do, what makes these Olympians, um, Olympians and, and does it, does it actually have to do with the microbiota at all? Hmm. So was there, did you have, do you have an idea of whether the microbiota helps make them better athletes? So um, there's actually a couple companies that started in this space um, to, to try and address that as well. Um, uh, one I think is called Fitbiomics. Um, and, you know, we, we started to see signatures of, um, and, and there's a poster and soon to be a paper uh, on this, but um we did see that certain microbes were more prevalent in, um, you know, certain teams. So, you know, let's, um, you know, we've, we studied teams like rowers and cyclists and runners, but you also studied teams like um, rugby players and soccer players. So you, you have this, this difference of, you know, um, more, more strictly endurance sports to moving towards more strictly skill sports and, and things of that nature. Um, so we did see that certain bugs were more prevalent in, different teams. Um, and you know, that, that might be because of the sport they played. It also might be because of the foods they consume or where they're physically located and how much they travel. Um, so we hadn't, um, in terms of our studies yet pinned down anything that said, you know, this species of bacteria or this strain is important for performance in a given area. Um, but I think over time, uh, that could be something, uh, a direction that, we or, or other groups were to go. Okay. I could see where you would need to do more studies to kind of figure out if it's just team specific rather than type of athlete specific. <laughs> so like exactly. more like based on location rather than like the sport itself or being an athlete at all. True. And you could, you could actually, at one end of it, you might even be able to use it as a diagnostic. So usually when you're when you're thinking of how do we identify people who are going to be good at a sport, well, you, you either have to look at, you know, if you're talking about I don't know, basketball, you might say, okay, who's anyone over six feet five? Like, you know, we're going to, we're going to start seeing if this person can, can play basketball because they've already got this physical build that makes them capable of being good at it. Um, but for endurance sports, it tends to be a bit harder. And, um, you know, because you don't look at it, someone and say, this person's going to be a great cyclist, um, especially at a super young age. And, you know, if we were to find something like, hey, you know, these microbes, if you find them in someone's gut, they, they have this incredible ability to be uh, a cyclist, you know, then, then maybe you could start picking people out at, at, at an earlier age or something like that. So it might be um, an interesting um, biological passport or diagnostic aspect that you could, you could, um, fit in. Okay. Hmm. Well, so we've talked a lot about different ways that microbes impact us and how we can possibly change them. But uh, from your years of research and your work, um, what would you say you've learned just like one thing that you found that you learned that really applies to our daily lives about microbes? So I, I think one thing that I want to stress is that, you know, microbes are present in our every part of our life, um, whether it's on us, in us, um, in the places we go, in the food that we eat. 
And a lot of them do amazing things that, that make, you know, humans humans and, and make the world go round kind of, <laughs> as, as cheesy as it sounds. So getting rid of microbes through like, you know, antimicrobial carpet bombing is mm. usually a very bad idea. Um, and so don't be afraid of bugs. Um, mm, on the other good. hand, you know, I think we should understand that um, antibiotics have a place in a time. So I'm yes. not, I'm never going to advocate for like, Hey, don't take antibiotics. Like if you have an infection, you should probably take an antibiotic and, you know, yeah. take it as prescribed. Um, so there's, there's a delicate balance of like using things like this as well as uh, understanding that, you know, it's a dirty world. Microbes are all around you and on you at all times. Um, <laughs> so. And dirty doesn't always have to be bad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, that was awesome. Um, so now I wanted to ask you something. I've been asking anyone that comes on the podcast, um, what at-home microbiology activity can you tell us about so we can experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? So um, one of my favorite, uh, this is a mix of at-home and kind of on, on computer, um, has been, you know, I studied my own uh, gut microbiome by uh, using companies like American Gut or American Gut was a uh, kind of a consortia. Um, but there's a lot of online companies now that you can purchase a sampling kit through and, you know, either swab your skin or swab your nose or, you know, put some poop into a little jar and send it back to them. And they'll actually sequence the usually bacteria only um, present in the sample. And so you can almost like DIY or citizen science um, your own microbiomes and mm -hmm. you could, um, you know, use it to test, you know, if you have, maybe if you have dry skin or something like that, you want to test, is this new product changing my skin microbiome that I'm going to use to fix my dry skin? Um, you know, you could look and, and you'd have a little plot of which bacteria were on before you used it and then which bacteria were on after you used it. Um, so that's something I've done. I sampled my, my, um, my child's, uh, after she was born, we, I sampled her stool and, <laughs> um, to see how it progressed from, you know, the day she was born up until six months. Um, and I sampled my dog's, uh, uh, stool and skin microbiomes to see how they changed over time. Okay. So you can use these companies that, um, are they specific to the different types of samples that you would take, or would you just submit kind of an off the wall sample to any of these companies? Um, good question. So some companies specifically focus on specific, on, um, certain microbiomes. So, um, there are skin microbiome companies. Um, there's actually one that's, that's in the, uh, cohort that I, that brick built is in, uh, called sequential skin. Um, and they focus on skin sampling. So they, you know, send a swab and, and it's meant and their analysis is meant to be done for skin. Um, but there's other companies that are more generalistic where you could either get a swab or, or, a, or a, um, uh, a little tube that you could put anything in, but, you know, dirt, stool, saliva, anything of that nature. Cool. Well, that sounds like a really fun activity. <laughs> um, okay. So do you have any resources that can be websites, books, articles that, um, people can go and look at and go deeper on this topic? Sure. Um, one of my favorites, and this is biased because um, I uh, more or less did my, my postdoc uh, grant came through here, um, would be microbe.net. So M-I-C-R-O-B-E dot net. Um, and it has a great resource for things like um, environmental sampling. Um, and, and I should note that my postdoc was uh, through a grant that was through the Sloan Foundation. And the Sloan Foundation uh, is is hooked in with with microbe.net. Okay, awesome. Well, I will link to that in the show notes. Um, did you have anything else that you want to add? Um, no, this has been uh, this has been great. This has been a pleasure. I love uh, being able to convey um, microbiology to the masses because I think it's it's really cool and it's kind of gotten me for the last you know twenty years of my life. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been really fun and we've gotten to talk about a lot of different cool things. So where can everyone go to find, follow and connect with you? 
Um, so uh, now, you know, Brickbuilt Therapeutics, um, and Brickbuilt is one word. Um, and so you can find us on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter, um, and we, we're, we're just getting started. So um, there's, there's not too many posts yet, but there are a, lot, a lot more will be forthcoming. Uh, and myself, I'm Brian Klein, um, and you can also find, find me on Twitter as well. Awesome. And we'll have links to those in the show notes. Thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun. I really appreciate your time and coming on the Joyful Micro podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Micro podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to help others who love microbes to find the podcast, then please leave a rating and review for the show. To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. If you want to connect on social media, you can also find me on Twitter at Joyful Microbe and on Instagram at Justine LDs. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time.